Drink and Read presents War and Peace, Volume 2, Part 1, Chapters 1 through 16. I've been, been waiting all day for you, babe, so please don't come to talk to me. And tell me how we're gonna be together always. Hope you know that when it's late at night, I want you out of my sight. And think about how I promised you forever. I never thought can make me feel this way Now that you're here, Pierre, all that I want Is just a chance to say Get out right now It's the end of you and me It's too late I can't wait to get it on Cause I love my brother Who? I mean my lover Dalikov You said that you would treat me right But you're just a big jerk off Hello, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski And we're about to read some good shit Welcome back to Drink and Read War and Peace Podcast Biggest on the internet, best on the internet Most humble on the internet, definitely And that little ditty That JoJo cover goes out to none other than Helene Kuragin Bezukov Because her and Pierre's relationship Is much like I prefer My whiskey on the rocks If you're joining us now, we had just completed Volume 1 with our introduction to the Peace and War characters. We've left a lot up in the air, and Volume 2, well, let's just say when we go back to our Peace characters, they're having a little war of their own, a war of decorum and intrigue, and oh, it's so juicy, I can't wait to share it with you. This being said, please go back and listen to the initial episodes because there are going to be some big spoilers that come and there's going to be a lot of shocking twists and turns, like a, like a game of Mario Kart going on. As always, I have a very minor and brief appendices section where I point out my foibles, quibbles, and qualms with what I recorded last step. Overall, pretty good, but I do apologize with the banging that was happening next door, my neighbor Karen, because of course she's named Karen, but she's a pleasant lady, despite all the, the modern uh, stipulations that come with that name. No fear, Karen has finished her renovations on her new kitchen as I look down from my kitchen window with a sneer on my face, so there should not be any further banging. Also, I want to say I'm sorry, I was extremely down as I was recording last week's episode. Uh, it's that postseasonal depression, you know, and my life is not that... The, the tens that I wish it was at, but we're working on that, and this is a project that I want to devote my time and passion to, so I'm gonna buck up Buttercup whenever the camera's rolling. It also didn't help that our boys Nikolai and Andre got a little existential, because guess who's been sharing in that? Me! Yay! Existential dread! Existential dread! It's all in your head, but it's also true. Existential dread! 
But this is a drink and read. Where is the drink prescribed for this podcast? Well, I've got it, and there's no better drink to chase the blues away than forgive me for another song, but here we go. Hey, baby, pour a glass. Feast your eyes on the bonny lass. She's a fashion clown, pretty witty, vocals down. My life is never fading. Can't wait for you to say it. The winner is Rosé. If this continues to devolve into a Drag Race podcast, do forgive me, audience, but today we're drinking rosé, some yellowtail rosé, and what better drink than to hobnob with high society once more, and you're gonna be wanna sipping on that sizzler, because... <laughs> Let's just say the drama overfloweth on today's episode. We're going to be reading the entirety of Volume 2, Part 1. That's 16 chapters. All right. Cracked knuckles. Cracked neck. Let's get to it. New chapter, new volume, new year. It's 1806. And we're going to first check in on how the Rostovs are doing because Nikolai is coming home and he's brought a friend. It's Denyazov, everyone's favorite boy. Literally, Denyazov, secret best character of the novel. Nikolai and Denyazov are on leave, and Nikolai has convinced Denyazov to come and meet his family, and this is a very joyous occasion. He's he's making the horses charge as fast as they can. He spies his house in the distance and goes, We're home! We're home! And though he wanted to do that thing where you sneak up and surprise your family, the family is well aware they all rush out, greet him, kiss, and hug him, and... It, you know, the Rostovs, they are a very good family. Very kind... Totally loving. I'm sure Vera is somewhere in the corner smoking a very long cigarello, puts it out on her skin and just goes, eh. Of course, all in the house aside from Vera are overjoyed. Anna Mikhailovna, the servants, and especially young Natasha and Sonia. Sonia has aged very well, according to the narrator. She is now 16 and more beautiful than ever. Now, if we recall, dear readers, there was some very intense drama with these. Sonia felt that Nikolai was making eyes at Julie Karagin, not related to the Karagins, and Julie had said to Mary Bolkonsky in her letters that Nikolai had taken her fancy, but Nikolai runs up to Sonia, they embrace, she is weeping, very, very lovely scene. Will it last? We don't know, but right now, it's good. Denyazov is standing there, shy but appreciative to this very warm family. Um, immediately, Count Rostov is like, I don't care who you are, quick, get in, we're huggers! And everyone is hugging and kissing Denyazov as well, including the youngest, who I assume is about 14. Natasha kisses Denyazov, and Denyazov shrugs this off, but appreciates her, her affection. After all the celebration from the night before, Denyazov and Nikolai sleep in, and Natasha, Sonia, and young little Petya wait for Nikolai to wake up in order for them to just reconvene as a family. Um, it's just very nice to see this emotionally stable, loving family when compared to the Karagins and the Bolkonskis. Night and day. Natasha takes Nikolai aside and admits that Sonia, while she still loves and respects him, she kind of wants to play the field a little bit more. She's become more confident in her womanhood. Nikolai agrees to this. Of course, he still has some love and respect for Sonia, but it's nice to also see that they have grown up and matured as people. Like, they promised each other to love each other. When they were younger, and we know that nine times out of ten that does not stick, but there's no bad blood between them. 
Natasha further attests to this as she admits to Nikolai, I don't love Boris anymore. That promise that we made for each other for eternal love, it's not the thing. But who is this man that came with you? This Denisov? He's cute, right? Is he nice? Is he a doctor? Oh. And this is another clue that we should pick up on, that Natasha likes to flirt, and this isn't a bad thing. She's young, she's innocent, she wants to dip her hand into every pie and taste everyone, see which one she likes best, right? That, that's not a bad thing. She's young, she's incorrigible. Nikolai and Sonia are still talking, but it's a lot more formal. Instead of calling her just Sonia or her nickname, Nikolai refers to her as Miss Sonia, and it's at dinner, and there's a lull in the conversation, and of course Vera puts down her cigarette, picks up her binoculars, and goes, Huh, isn't it odd to anyone else that Nikolai and Sonia are all formal? Weren't they, like, lovey-dovey just a few years ago? Everyone snubs this off, but says, You know what, you're right, Vera, but you didn't have to bring it up that way. Ugh, Vera... And it turns out, with a little perfume and some clean clothes, Denyazov comes down to dinner and woo-woo, we got a fox alert, baby. Everybody's jaws drop, even Count Rostov is like, whoa, what a lady killer. If I was a lady and a few years younger, hmm, maybe, maybe. So chapter two, Nikolai is the talk of the town, he has the women, he has the money, and he's on leave, so he's enjoying every free moment he can get away from the hell that is the army. And I hate to say it, but Nikolai, you were so close with that near-death experience, you just had that warm welcome from the Rostov family, and it's all going to your head, you're blowing it. He kind of shrugs off Sonia, goes, I'm too mature for her now, I could have any girl I want with my military experience, and no, it's not a good look for you. Sometime later, Count Rostov wants to prepare a big celebration party for General Brogration. Even though it was a very minor victory, it allowed the Russians to flee and practically saved these boys' lives. So he's going to put together a huge party. They're talking about all the different sauces they're preparing for the meal and how there's three different mayonnaises. Oh! But there is Count Rostov yet again doing the nice thing, very magnanimous, generous, out of his own goodwill is he throwing a party to boost the morale of the citizens of Moscow. And when you throw a party, who's there but high society? Of course, Anna Mikhailovna is going to be there, and Pierre and his beautiful wife Helene are going to be there, but they are in the tabloid section of the Moscow news. Um, their marriage is not doing so hot, so among the talk of the fresh strawberries and pineapples and should we bring some gypsy girls, which is a slur, I don't know if you refer to them as Romani people, and there are points in this novel where it does come across as a slur. Um, I want to apologize, I do not mean any offense, I'm only quoting what's written. Anna Mikhailovna arrives and tells Count Rostov outright that Pierre and Helene are not doing so hot and that she heard that Helene is off with, uh-oh, here he comes again, Death Drop Dolikov. <laughs> he gets around. <laughs> and that Pierre is being cuckolded by Dolikov and Helene right under the entirety of St. Petersburg and Moscow's noses. And everyone knows they are pretty much sure that Pierre knows deep down, but they cannot admit it to his face. And these Russian people have turned on a dime. All the blame is going to poor Kutuzov, who we know is the most competent general and has his men closest to his heart. These Russians are placing the blame on the Germans and the Austrians and how Kutuzov is just, you know, he's the whipping boy in this scenario. They gotta place the blame somewhere. And it breaks my heart. And it's shocking conclusion to this chapter. They're talking about Andrei Bolkonsky and how he might be dead. So Andrei's dead? It's a shame he died so young? What? 
He can't die. He's one of the major characters. Our boy Andre. He isn't here. Chapter 3, the party begins and Pierre is trying to live the best of both worlds, but he doesn't belong with the super rich old elite and he doesn't belong with the young hipsters not rich fighting in the military. He's in that weird gray area and it suits Pierre perfectly. He's trying to decide which of the groups he should, you know, click with more. Through Pierre's inner monologue, we see that he's sacrificed a lot of his personal appearance and personality to please his wife, Helene. He's let his hair grow out, he's removed his glasses, making him even more likely to bump into anything that isn't bolted down at this party. And Pierre, you don't have to change yourself, and besides, I don't think she's that into you. Count Rostov is milling around the party. We see that Dolokhov has been elevated to war hero status. He is a playboy now. He's set out to do what he set out to do and accomplish that. General Bagration shows up and he doesn't know how to act. He is a weird outsider in this community. He is not well vested in the Moscow social scene. Uh, dinner is being prepared for him. He is presented a poem to read aloud on a silver tray, doesn't know what it is, someone steps in, and this poem is just a love letter to General Bagration himself. It, uh, like, this is the things that the, the people here waste their money on, his poems, when there's a war going on? We should be getting out! We then descend into a description of the lavish prepared dinner that is well-timed and well-placed, um... I didn't know if Count Rostov planned this, but he places our main boys right next to each other, so Pierre is sitting directly across from Dolokhov, who is currently boinking his wife. So there is going to be plenty of drama to be had in this. And as if he didn't get enough shoutouts already, everyone raises a glass to... Three, two, one, you guessed it, Emperor Alexander, long may he reign, so cute, yay, we love him. Okay, chapter four. This is where shit starts to go down. So Pierre, being a very large man, is eating and drinking a lot. And it's showing on his face to all those around him that Pierre is in a very stressful situation. And as I said, the person boinking his wife is sitting right across from him. Pierre is not talking, which is very unlike him. He's not happy. He's grimacing at his food, squinting, and mm, clearly in pain. Pierre doesn't want to come to terms with it, but realizes that he has to because he had received an anonymous letter describing how Dolokhov is fanoodling around his back with his wife that very morning. Now, I know throughout this entire recap podcast so far, we've penned Pierre as the bookish rogue type, but we have to remember he is a very, very big man and his size is daunting. And he doesn't seem to realize how big he is, but he is thinking about challenging Dolokhov to a duel in order to defend his own and his wife's honor. Now, Pierre is rightly intimidated because Dolokhov, being also a jock and a war hero, having come out of the battles unscathed, is probably a way better duelist than him who has never fired a gun before in his life. So Pierre is spacing out, missing toast to the Emperor, and Dolokhov, as we learned, is not a humble person. He is there to gloat, he is there to be a little bitch about it. And Dolokhov, while raising the toast, suggests that they give a toast to married woman. Now Dolokhov is not married, and Pierre is, and he aims this insult directly at Pierre, and Pierre is not dumb, he can put two and two together, it's on. Like, just the sheer gall that Dolokhov has to be like, to the health of married women and their lovers. I'm that lover. Pierre is fuming. They're handing out lyrics to a song to sing for the Emperor of Regression or whatever they're singing. These men, they're all drunk. And 
Pierre gets the lyrics that he's supposed to sing. Dolokhov, being a petty Betty, snatches them out of Pierre's hand, and Pierre goes the fuck off. He throws his corpulent form across the table and goes, You, you scoundrel, I fucking hate you! Pierre says, enough is enough, I challenge you to a duel, and the moment he says it, he turns against Helene and the world and Dolokhov and everyone who's ever belittled him for anything. Dolokhov is just casually chill about this, like, yeah, I've killed so many people before, but I think that you're gonna add to the list, so we'll do it tomorrow, okay, bye. And Nikolai is sitting there like, oh, you're my two friends, what are you doing? You can't do this to each other. But Nikolai agrees to be Pierre's second in this scenario, and although we may think that Hamilton did the duel musical first. I think that Great Comet was around a few years before that. So we do get a, an outline of like the Ten Dual Commandments, how you write letters to your parents or your loved ones saying that if you don't make it, it was to defend your honor. You have to go into a duel with the intention to kill because if you don't intend to kill, you're going to get killed yourself. You have to try to come to terms with the other person and see if you have, if there's any way to make this water under the bridge, which clearly it's not with these two. Pierre can't sleep that night, and immediately, it's the next day, 8 o'clock, in some woods outside of town. And on my first read-through, my heart went out to Pierre because his mind is clearly not in the moment or on the duel. He's thinking about how his wife betrayed him and how he is unlovable, and it's sad. He's just taking in his surroundings in a cloud and fog. And pardon me, Nikolai is in Pierre's second. It's Nizvitsky who is his second there, and he is trying to make Pierre come to terms with how no one deserves to die, like, please rethink this, reconsider, maybe there's another way you can work out. And Pierre even admits, oh, this is horribly stupid, but I'm here now, so I kind of have to follow through if I want to prove my manhood to the world. Pierre just asks, tell me where to go and when to shoot. Oh, I've never held a, a pistol before. Is this how it works? You just pull this little trigger and aim and... <laughs> oh, honey, <laughs> this isn't gonna end well. So all is silent, chapter five. The duel is on. Hashtag pray for Pierre. Oh, a duel, yes, this is what I like. He will kill you, stupid husband, so I shall be killed. What is it to you? Anatole, my gun, Lord, this is horribly stupid. So if you are a fan of Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812, you may realize that this duel section has different characters and it is in a different section of the novel entirely than what that musical is based on. So interesting kind of melding of the themes and Pierre's journey into the musical by Dave Malloy. I've always really appreciated that. Anyway, Novitsky is Pierre's second, and Denyazov is Dolokhov's second, and they start the duel. On the count of three, they're going to take six paces towards each other, or ten paces, whatever, and then fire, but you only get one shot until the next person goes. Pierre takes a few paces forward, misfires his gun, and it seems as if all hope is going to be lost because it is Dolokhov's turn now. Pierre is frightened by the loud bang that the gun produces, and when the smoke clears, he sees that Dolokhov has fallen, actually been hit by Pierre, but is getting up and is quickly approaching Pierre for his shot. Dolokhov takes his shot and for once is off his mark because he's grievously wounded, and this is going to put him out of commission for a while, and we do get a secret side to Dolokhov. Nikolai and the others are carrying Dolokhov back to town in a troika to get him to a doctor, and Nikolai asks, like, are you okay? Are you hanging in there? And he sees an utter, like, dispressed and yet 
peaceful expression come over Dolokhov, where he goes, I'm sorry I made such a bad mistake. She won't survive this. Nikolai asks who? He goes, my adored angel mother. She's going to die when she hears that I'm gone. And then what of my sister? So secret backstory, Dolokhov is a big softie on the inside. I think there's just a lovely humanity here that Tolstoy has really mastered because remember Dolokhov throughout the whole num um, the whole novel, not the whole number, we're not singing now, he started out as that bear-baiting prick who was drinking and daring people to make him jump out the window or stand on the ledge. He was insulting the French, belittled, worked his way up back in the ranks, became a playboy, cheated on Pierre's wife, and now we're still kind of on his side because he loves his mother and his family and... He has come to a realization that without him, the family will not survive. Of course, I do not like how they describe the mother and sister as old and hunchbacked, but that's uh, picking at the details. Pierre lives to love another day. Anyways, chapter six. Pierre is suffering at the guilt of having almost killed this man, his life choices, but the main thing that he arrives at is he doesn't love Helene and he should not have married her. So he returns home and sets himself up for a confrontation with her. How did this happen? What did I do? I killed the lover of my wife, but isn't that your fault? Because I kind of married her in the first place. But there are other determining factors here that they should have seen. First off, they never see each other, and everyone in town, his stewards, his servants, everyone he meets seems to know more than Pierre does about this relationship, or at least has acknowledged that they know more than he does. Next, and this is a big one that's going to come up, Pierre is thoroughly convinced that Helene is spending far too much time with her brother Anatole in a way that is incestual, they're very kissy-kissy on one another, and it creeps him out, it's kind of gross to him, and he did bring up the conversation that this was happening and suggested, like, maybe we should have some kids, and Helene looked at him and said, I'm never going to have kids with you, ugh, so... Yeah, it's time to end things. Now, Pierre, very genius mind here, invents the text message breakup, but instead of a text message, he's going to write a letter and then vamoose out, leaving Helene none the wiser. He can't physically do it to her face. So the next morning before he can do the deed, Helene barges in and is very pissed off at him for almost killing her lover, but plays it in a way that, oh, you're stupid to have believed any of the lies that you were told. I was not in love with Dolokhov. You're my husband. What are you thinking about? You're just a childish fool. Pierre doesn't even bother himself with listening to what Helene is saying, but focuses more on how she's saying the words in French, because she has a very gruff pronunciation, and he, he thinks to himself, oh, this is fitting. Why didn't I notice this before? She can't even speak this beautiful language beautifully. Helene is convinced that they're going to be laughing stocks in and out of town. The whole world knows, and she's just na 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 na. And this is the final straw for Pierre. He goes into a berserker rage, which we will see. Angry Pierre is not pleasant Pierre. He's more of a scary person. Pierre is suggesting to Helene to stop belittling him, calling him a fool, and leave him alone. Helene keeps twisting the knife. Pierre gets so upset, he grabs this heavy chunk of marble, as rich people often have on their fucking tables, I guess, and takes a swing at Helene and says, I am going to kill you. Get out of this house. And Helene runs off, and oof, angry Pierre. 
Now, Pierre must be going through a lot. I know it's that poor little rich boy mindset, but his father just died, leaving him a vast fortune. He's been elevated in society when everyone ignored him. His wife is cheating on him with a lover and possibly her brother, and he just almost killed someone with a, in a duel and came to a religious, spiritual conclusion that he isn't as good as he would set out to be. So I understand this is a lot, um, and he is thankful that Elaine has left the room because he was pretty sure that he was going to kill her. Minute sentence at the end of the chapter, Pierre reveals that he's giving Helene more than half of his fortune, leaves the house, the property, everything to her, and goes to move to Petersburg instead. So we're going to see how this wealth affects Helene along with this secret divorce. They're just not talking now, it's not official, but... Now, we are left to our own conclusions as to if this was from guilt at almost killing her and her lover, if this is at repentance, trying to make amends with that and clear up the marriage, or if it's just Pierre saying, more money, more problems, here, take half of it, I don't want this dirty thing anyway. I'd like to think it's the latter in my opinion, but you're not sure, and you can take it any way you want. Alrighty-roo, chapter 7. It's been two months, and still these poor Bolkonskis do not know if Andre is alive or not, and naturally this has made the entire family distraught. They are hoping, by the grace of God or some divine providence, that Andre was picked up by a good Samaritan along the way and he'll be home any day now, but they've been sending letters and they haven't received any good prospects, so it is not looking good for them. Kutuzov has shot a letter to Prince Bolkonsky saying that his son, last time he saw, had picked up the pen and was charging forward into battle. So if he did die, he died a hero's death. Prince Bolkonsky receives this letter at night and doesn't tell a single soul about it in the house. He's walking around the next day in total utter silence until Mary's um, expected lesson, where he's working at his lathe and puts it down. And something really interesting here is this flashbulb memory that Mary receives. She goes, like, I would always remember him putting down his chisel and stopping work at his lathe to tell me this. But he can't bring himself to say it in words. Mary can pick up on his utterly destroyed face that it has to be her brother. Her brother is dead. And then Prince Bolkonsky breaks down in tears. And that is a gut-wrenching moment because this tin soldier of a man who didn't show any emotions at all now is overwhelmed by a deep, depressing sadness. Mary doesn't burst out in tears directly, but turns towards religion and prays for Andre's soul. She is worried, yet hopeful, that Andre has repented his sins, accepted God into his heart, and has moved on to a different life now. I do appreciate this turn in how Mary doesn't break down in tears, like we almost would expect her, and she turns towards God, like there is this personal religious strength within her. People grieve differently, so that's all I'm gonna say on that. It's just an interesting turn. Prince Bolkonsky then gives Mary a different responsibility with someone's gotta go tell his pregnant wife and it's going to be you. Mary goes, fine, I'll do it. She arrives at Lisa's room and of course she's like posed elegantly holding her unborn child, which is gonna come any moment now, and thinking lost in space about her husband, which she loves. And Mary decides to herself, I cannot tell her now because it will endanger her and this child, so I will tell her as soon as the baby is born. 
I mean, if put in those shoes, I guess I would do a similar thing, but there is that postpartum depression that would probably- oh, it would not be a good combination in my mind, so I don't know what I would do in this scenario. I don't know what any of us would do in this scenario, but Mary and Prince Bolkonski decide to hide the news. Prince Bolkonski is completely devastated. He's ordering a grave for Andre. But Mary still has hope that he is alive and prays to God, please let him write to us, please let him be discovered, please let him be safe. Man, a couple downer chapters back to back to back in chapter 8. Oh, the drama, high drama is here because Lisa, that baby's coming out. It's time to have baby Bolkonski. So it's a night in March and Lisa is having the baby screaming in pain. First she's in denial, but... Bolkonski is like, that baby is coming, someone call the midwife. The midwife is there, and they also want to get an obstetrician from the city who is en route. The midwife goes, I've done this before, I'll be fine. Mm, that's always a warning sign in these period dramas that things are not going to end so hot. Mary runs off to her room to go pray, and feels that her prayers aren't working. Her old nanny sneaks in, and the two have a, a little uh, reconciliation moment, because Prince Bolkonski forbids the nanny to speak to Mary because she's too old now. But uh, they're trying to get through their own struggles together, and the entire house is dead silent while Lisa lies screaming in pain upstairs trying to deliver this baby with the midwife. That night, there's a terrible snow squall going on outside, and it blows open the window to Princess Mary's room. Her nursemaid looks out and says, My dear, there's a carriage coming up, and Mary assumes, Oh, it has to be the obstetrician, I have to run downstairs and greet him. She runs downstairs, hears a voice, and goes, My god, it can't be. Is that my brother, Andre? And it turns out Andre has arrived home he is alive, so she is ecstatic about that, but not under these specific circumstances, and she sees that he's changed. He's softened slightly, but he's grown cold too. Um, and we can tell that that's from his near-death experience with Napoleon. He embraces his sister, which is totally out of practice, Ask her, did you receive my letter? She's like, no, still agog and aghast, and then runs upstairs to comfort his wife. So very great character arc so far for our boy Andre, where he started as cold and calculating towards his family and friends and all of his loved ones, and now he's embracing them after experiencing near death, uh, realizing that there is more to live for on this earth, and he shouldn't take advantage of the people around them. So I do appreciate character growth, but ladies and gentlemen and all in between, I'm very sad, I'm very somber because things are not going to end well. Chapter 9, Andre bursts into his study where Lysia is currently set up on a couch in labor and goes, My dear, it's me, I'm back, I'm not dead. But Lisa does not even recognize where she is, who he is, and what's going on in this scenario. And she begs Andre, who she doesn't recognize, I love you, whoever you are, but why am I in such pain? I've never done any wrong in my life, why am I suffering so? Which, God... I can't imagine. Kudos to anyone who can have a child, because, oof. The midwife says to Andre that you really shouldn't be here to see your wife in pain like this. Please leave the room and wait, and I'll try to do the best I can. Andre does, and he is pacing the floors. He doesn't know what to do. He's a desperate dad in this situation. They're describing Lisa making sounds like a dying animal outside, which is anything but pleasant. And finally, he does hear a baby crying, and he's so out of it, Andre, that he's like, why would they bring a baby in there with her? Oh my god. It's my baby! And he burst into the room. 
When he goes into the room, he finds it eerily quiet, and he looks down at his wife, Lisa, and she is dead with the same expression that she had before with, why is this happening to me? I have never hurt anyone in my life, this pain, and she is no longer with us. This is the first loss of a very major character in our book, aside from all the soldiers who fought and lost their lives. So it is very disheartening to see that it was the mother figure for Bolkonsky's son. And I can only imagine what he feels. He is stunned to silence, and we just listen as there is a small red thing being held by the um, the midwife in the corner of the room. And this is Andre's new son. A few hours pass, and Andre goes upstairs to visit his dad, and his dad silently expresses that he knows everything already. He gives him a vice-like hug and starts bawling into Andre, which just goes to show that... Old Prince Bolkonsky has put on this appearance, but when it comes to his son and his family, he truly does care. And man, it's just, it's really somber, but powerful in this. We've had a few moments like this in the book, but I'm sorry if I sound so down. It's just depressing. A few days later, there is a funeral service and burial of Princess Lisa, and Andre finds that he cannot express any sort of emotion. He describes it as feeling as if a piece of his soul has snapped off. He cannot stop thinking about his wife's final moments in pain and how he wasted that time and how he treated her, so surely he must be to blame. Uh, old Prince Bolkonsky tries to express his emotions as well, but just resorts back to anger once more. A few days later, the young boy is baptized as Nikolai Andreich. Um, of course, this is another Nikolai in the book, so I'm going to refer to this young Bolkonsky as Nikolushka Bolkonsky, um, because I don't want to confuse the characters. And Andre is unable to attend the baptism because he fears that the baby is going to drown because that's his luck and that's the way he feels. The baby is brought to him and the nursemaid reveals that apparently you adorn the baby with a piece of wax and if it floats that's like good favor but I think the wax always floats is the thing but Andre is overwhelmed to see his son and um, we can only hope that this relationship between father and son is going to go a little bit differently than grandfather and son. Whew, that was a series of heavy chapters, and we still have some more to go, but I, I just want to pause a second and just uh, hear my plea, audience, that if you have not read War and Peace with detail, if the book seems too long or intimidating for you or, or lengthy and there's too many names, try to see past that just to get to the descriptions of the pain that these people are emotionally feeling at the time. I think it comes across beautifully, it's poignant, and it's not to be missed. In chapter 10, we're going to return to Dolokhov's bedside and see that Nikolai Rostov is there taking care of him along with Dolokhov's mother and sister. Um, Nikolai has had a saving grace because his father has hushed up that he was involved in any way with the duel. Uh, with Dolokhov and Pierre. Um, back then, if you did kill someone during a duel, this would be considered murder, and you would probably put to death as a repercussion for it. So, whew, that's a bullet dodged, literally. Dolokhov's mom and sister revealed to Nikolai that, really, Dolokhov is a giant teddy bear. He just does things to cause mischief, and he would do anything for his family and friends, which is 
sweet. And Dolokhov starts talking to Nikolai unlike any Dolokhov that we've heard of before. Where was that bastard that just a few seconds ago was uh, committing adultery on one of his friends and bragging about it to an entire crowd of people? No, he's like, people consider me a despicable man, but I try to be anything but. It's really just a show. It's a front. He also says he's met men in a similar situation, but he's never met the perfect match in a woman, and that's kind of the void he's been trying to fill, but if that woman should ever come along that's exceptionally pure, hmm, that's a feather to put in our cap for later, because it's interesting who Dolokhov might be suggesting and what faith has in store for him. <laughs> That fall, the Rostovs all return to Moscow with Denyazov in turn, and Dolokhov is around, and there are a few relationships blooming under the surface here, so some positivity. All the Rostov women are in their peak form. Vera, cold stone bitch, is pretty and 20 years old. Sonia is a tender 16, and Natasha is a bit younger than Sonia, probably around the 14, 13, but all are lookers. And this is catching the eye of any man that Nikolai brings into the house. So Nikolai brings Dolokhov over one day, and everyone loves him in the house except Natasha. Natasha says to Nikolai that Dolokhov was in the wrong when he fought dear Pierre. Pierre was in the right, and Dolokhov is clearly a wicked man in going against my bestie Pierre. Hmm, interesting you would think that, Natasha. And ever on the bad boy streak, Sonia's heart does a tumble when she meets Dolokhov. Sonia may be good, but she like him bad. Natasha does bring up the lingering thought of Denyazov once more, and there could be a relationship truly blooming there, um, but Sonia and Dolokhov's relationship is the main one on the table for this chapter. Sonia blushes whenever Dolokhov is in the room, and Dolokhov, who is an exceptional ladies' man, is paying specific, close, and warm attention to Sonia that he rarely shows anyone, so could this be the beautiful match? Sonia is good? Natasha's cousin and closest friend, falling for Death Drop Dolokhov? Hmm. With their leave almost over and Napoleon inching closer to the Russian borders, Prince Alexander declares that every capable Russian soldier is going to go back to the army after their leave. Chapter 11, we're in the Rostov house around Christmas time, and cookies are not the only thing snuggling up and getting warm if you catch my drift. Oh no, Dolokhov and Sonia are starting to mack on one another, and Nikolai is the third party. As you remember, Sonia had a crush on Nikolai, so we're going to see how this little trifle Fecta ends up. Nikolai senses something is up in the atmosphere when he returns home one day to find Dolokhov, Sonia, and Natasha perplexed, to say the least. Something has happened between Sonia and Dolokhov, but he's too polite to ask directly about it, so he waits a bit before... Later that night, Natasha asks Denyazov to attend a dancing party with her and lets slip to Nikolai that Sonia and Dolokhov propose to one another. Now, Nikolai is initially upset, like, uh, that's my girl, even though he has barely shown her the time of day for, you know, a whole volume of the novel, and then comes to the sane realization that for Sonia, this is probably a very good marriage. Dolokhov is well-to-do, it'll um, enhance her name around town, so it sounds good to him. Not that Sonia needs your permission or anything, Nikolai. But then Natasha drops another bomb and says that Sonia said no to Dolokhov. <laughs> Even though Countess Rostov was like, You've made the wrong decision, Sonia! You need to do this! Oh, God, why? 
And just as these two are talking about her, you know what'll happen. That girl walks in. Sonia comes into the room and Nikolai is like, You should really marry Dolokhov, even though I think you still harbor feelings for me. But Sonia reveals to Nikolai that she doesn't technically love him in the way that he thinks she does. It's more like love between a brother and a sister. And... It's her choice to do what she wants with her life, and if she's not feeling it in the moment, it's her decision to make. So good on you, Sonya. See, this is why Sonya, secretly the best character in the novel. You sleeping on Sonya. Chapter 12, for the first of many, it's a ball, darling. Bring it to the runway. Runway. Run, 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 runway. All the young Russian people are out and about, and these balls are very important, not only to display your wealth, have fun, but primarily to find a spouse or two. And Natasha has her eyes set on Denyazov, and Denyazov can talk about nothing but the beauty that is young Natasha Rostova. Sonia and Natasha are described as the most beautiful young women there, and they're both very proud that evening. Sonia is feeling her oats because she said no to Dolokhov, and yet she still feels eligible and beautiful. And Natasha, despite her age, walks into the room and just exudes love for everyone and everything in it. Natasha is clearly the best dancer there, and Denyazov cannot take his eyes off her and comments about her beauty, her skill, her grace to everyone, really hyping her up, and it's extremely cute. Natasha asks Denyazov to dance with her. He is very shy and is like, no, no, I wouldn't know the first thing about dancing. But you know in the club when your song plays and you secretly know this song, you're like, well, I could never. And then you drop it down real low. Denyazov walks out into the middle of the room and him and Natasha are doing cartwheels, flip-flops, whatever off each other, doing the fucking worm, getting down Cabbage Patch style. Oh, they're making a scene, and they seem to be a perfect match. Very, um, their relationship's full of, uh, appropriate synergy. And everybody at the ball is like, ah, there's a match, and the two stay together for the entire night. We're on chapter 13, and every big book needs this. It's a intense gambling scene. Nikolai is concerned because he has not seen Dolokhov for a few days, so he goes and knocks on his door and says, Hey, bud, what are you doing? It turns out that Dolokhov, despite being down on his luck, is a professional card shark and is making back tons of money by taking advantage of unsuspecting men coming to gamble. Nikolai knows this about Dolokhov, especially since they had a conversation where it was like, the greatest men don't gamble with luck, but skill, and he still agrees to, uh, you know, play a few hands with his buddy. Also, Dolokhov throwing a party going away back to the army for himself. I wish I had that uh, kind of nerve, because it do take nerve. Nikolai is just sitting there playing these hands and constantly losing, but like, oh, you can win back, you can win it back. At least that's what Dolokhov is telling him, and he keeps going double or nothing. Then he's down 800 rubles, and Dolokhov is like, just one more, double the bet. What could you lose? He doubles it, loses it, and now he's 1600 rubles in the hole, and he only has 1200 rubles that he got from daddy in the first place until next spring. So now you're in debt, honey. You should really get out of here. We know your dad is very generous and would probably give it to you, but don't waste this. This is not a good thing. There's war coming. And we can chalk this up to inexperience because he's given an out multiple times where he's like, I should really go home and have dinner with Natasha, Sonia, and Denyazov and forget about this because I've clearly lost. But 
I, I guess it's just youth and inexperience that he decides to just stay with Dolokhov and gamble despite Dolokhov being a known cheat or at least very good at the game he's playing. Chapter 14, all eyes are on this match between Dolokhov and Nikolai. This one-sided card bout is going on. Nikolai keeps losing and doesn't stop because he's in the hole and he doesn't know when to stop. And he's trying to figure out, like, Dolokhov, we've been friends all this time. Why are you taking advantage of me? What is the possible reason for you to be such an asshole when I know you're a nice guy at heart? And he keeps on losing and losing and losing, and eventually, here's the grand total, guys. It is a crazy amount. At the last hand, Nikolai owes Dolokhov 43,000 rubles. That is insane! How is he gonna get the money to pay that off? That's an exorbitant amount of money. Let me... Oh, there's no conversion machine that goes back, but that sounds like a lot, especially in the olden times. And Dolokhov is like, ooh, 43,000 rubles, I'm gonna be rich, when do I expect that? Well, we can't win them all, can we, Nikolai? And then he throws out this bitchy bitch line. Those lucky in love, unlucky at cards. Ooh, if I haven't heard that one before, it makes my skin crawl. But apparently this is about Sonia. Sonia dejected him, and now Dolokhov is taking it out on Nikolai. Now, dear readers, we don't know if Dolokhov truly is just messing with him and would have forgiven this debt because they're such close friends, but Nikolai takes it as an offense and is like, you're going to get your money tomorrow. Hell or high water, I'm going to raise it. We don't know how Nikolai is planning to do this, but he is going to figure something out in 24 hours. How to raise 43,000 rubles in 24 hours without really trying, starring Nikolai Rostov, huh? Chapter 15, Nikolai arrives back home and he is utterly depressed. He is completely out of it, but he walks into the beautiful sound of music because, as we know, Natasha is a good singer and she is a good dancer. So she is entertaining the lot by singing a song. Shake your ass, watch yourself, shake your ass, show me what you're working with. And Denyazov is passionately adding to the back of vocals to Natasha's little solo. Nikolai hears this beautiful music and sees the love of his family around him, and he can't get past this. He's like, I am a horrible person. I am 43,000 rubles in debt. The next thing that I'm going to deserve is a bullet through my head. So Nikolai is down in the dumps, and we're going to get introduced to another one of Natasha's superpowers, along with her disarming innocence. Whenever Natasha sings next to certain major characters at pivotal points in their life, lives, they learn something about themselves spurned by Natasha's pure innocence. So fortunately, on this night, Natasha is singing beautifully, and this melts Nikolai's worries away. He says, there is no need to be concerned about these gambling debts. It'll all work out, because in the moment, right now, my sister is singing, and dang, she's good! Is this the voice audition? And here we are at chapter 16, the final chapter of today's episode. Nikolai is bopping along to Natasha's song when his father walks in, and Nikolai says, well, there's no time like the present, better ask daddy for money. So he's like, father, I need some money. And he's like, oh, son, how much could it be? 43,000 rubles? And Nikolai's like, yeah, but it happens to everyone, right? And then in a real my dad sort of mood, Count Rostov starts, oh, 43,000 rubles, where are we gonna get it? And he he's like looking through the cushions, he's crying, he's bewildered, and Nikolai's like, I'm sorry, dad, I didn't 
minute he cracks the facade where he went into the scenario being like, oh, dad's going to give me the money. It's going to all work out. Now they're all panicking yet again in the matter of seconds. While money troubles are going on in this room, in the adjacent room, Natasha has a confession to her mother, Countess Rostov. And she goes, mom, Denyazov proposed for me. Countess Rostov is like, this has to be a joke. She's only... 13 years old, Denyazov, what can you possibly see in my daughter? But she goes, no, he really did it. Well, then you're gonna have to turn him down, because you're a little bit young, it's a flattering gesture, but I don't see it working out for you. And Natasha goes, I've never been proposed to in my life, I'm very excited, but should I go to him and tell him that it's a no? Or the Countess asks, should you being my mother go in my steed? Natasha's mom is like, I'll do it, but Natasha goes, no, let me do it, I'll let him down easy, and besides, it will give me practice, because I don't genuinely love him, but he is a very good person. So Natasha gives Denyazov the no, and he is heartbroken, he starts crying, bawling, he kisses her hand, says, I apologize for putting you through this, and then he leaves. What could have been, y'all? What could have been? Don't get me wrong, that age gap is terrifying, but it was a different time, and they are pretty cute together. I don't think there was any malintent. In a very short-lived ending to this chapter, Nikolai's waiting around for two weeks, and him and his dad are raising the 43,000 rubles needed to pay off Delikov's debt. They do so, though not specifically mentioned how or why. Um, they send the receipt off to Dolokhov, and then once that's done, the family bids goodbye to their son once again, and they all head off to Poland, because Napoleon is back to his dastardly tricks. Phew, a lot happened on this episode of Drink and Read, and I'd just like to thank you. Um, lately, I've been reading through the internet as well, and there is a Reddit devoted to War and Peace one chapter at a time, and that podcast has way more followers and clout than I ever could. But what's friendly competition, right? Remember, this is a podcast devoted to a quick, snarky look through the uh, sections of War and Peace and me sharing my personal opinions as a nobody on the internet. So I thank you for tuning in. Um, of course, before I go, if you like the sound of my voice or would like to follow me on other podcasts, I have Nightcaps at the Theater with my friends Matt Cabrera and Mark Zebro Jr. Please look through our annals. We have a lot of episodes in the library. And if you want something more recent, just celebrating our 100th episode. 100th? 100th episode is Anime Was Not a Mistake with my friend Dan Ryan, where we look at animes and anime-adjacent movies, or movies that we just love or love to hate. Um, it's a lot of fun, and I hope you tune in there. Of course, if you want to follow me on social media platforms, you can find me at LosingMyMindJK on Instagram, Drink and Read JK on Twitter, or follow this podcast, Drink and Read, at Drink and Read Podcast on Spotify, Instagram, oof, everywhere. Everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast. As a reminder, next week we're going to continue with another 16 chapters in Volume 2, Part 2, Chapters 1 through 16. In these chapters, we're going to catch back up with our old friend Pierre after he had his hulking out moment. We're going to see how Andre is dealing with the loss of his wife while coming to terms with being a single parent. And Pierre and Andre are going to have a little heart-to-heart that may change both of them for the better. So until then, I want you to remember to drink and read responsibly. Crochet! Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor.
This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.